It's Alum Group's Andrea Lay, Packview's Melissa Burdick, special guest Jackie Donowski from Flywheel, and I'm PVSB, also from Flywheel. Before we get to the CPG Guys episode you've downloaded, it's the week of May 13th, and it's time for the Fresh Four. Four curated news stories from the past week. We find them polyhistorically intriguing. We hope you do too. They're brought to you through our partnership with Retail Wit, your one-stop shop for retail industry intelligence and news. Retailwit.com. It's retail right now. Jackie, kick us off, would you? Disney Advertising and Walmart Connect to bring closed-loop attribution to streaming advertisers. Well, hello there, Fresh Boy listeners. Disney Advertising and Walmart Connect have solidified an agreement to bring the retailer's industry-leading audience solutions and measurement to Disney's addressable streaming inventory. The collaboration will enable enhanced audience targeting and outcome-based measurements for brand campaigns across Disney's streaming portfolio, including Hulu and Disney+. Connecting Walmart's customer insights with Disney's proprietary audience graph will help advertisers reach their desired audiences and measure the impact of their campaigns through closed-loop attribution. Thanks, Jackie. Andrea, over to you. Hello, Fresh 4 listeners. NBC Universal and Instacart link up to bring retail media opportunities to TV. NBC Universal and Instacart are expanding their existing partnership to include a new retail media workstream that will enable Instacart's CPG advertisers to connect with consumers via NBC Universal's streaming and linear television content. In late 2023, the companies teamed up to include access to NBC Universal's streaming platform Peacock as part of the Instacart Plus membership package. Now, with this new first-party data collaboration, advertisers will be able to reach consumers through NBC Universal's content and measure the impact of their campaigns by leveraging ad exposure and purchase data from Instacart. Thank you, Andrea. Melissa, what do you have for us? Amazon has announced a new country that they're opening up. Amazon has announced that it will launch a new dedicated website for Ireland in 2025. Currently, most Irish customers use Amazon sites based in the UK or other European countries. The company said the Irish site will mean that users will be able to avoid additional customs charges and currency conversion fees, and it will also lead to faster delivery and returns for many items. All right, over to you, Peter. Welcome to another episode of the CPG Guys podcast. Our hosts, Sri Rajkapalan, Peter V.S. Bond, and Brian Gildenberg, explore how brands and retailers engage consumers in an increasingly digitally driven world. And now, here are the CPG Guys. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the CPG Guys podcast, where we explore the omni-channel digital journey of brands and retailers. I'm your co-host today, Brian Gildenberg. This is my first time on the CPG Guys tackling the opening patterns, so hopefully I don't screw it up too badly. So, uh, so um, I'm, I'm also the host of the Gildenberg Omni Comment every Thursday on the CPG Guys podcast network, and we'll also be debuting a second podcast under the CPG Guys umbrella entitled Fast Forward. Uh, where we look at some of the key forces that are driving change in the commerce and retail media landscape through a slightly different lens than we uh, than we do on the on the typical CPG Guys podcast. Today, however, of course, from a hosting point of view, I'm joined by the guy who puts the OG in CPG, our uh, typical West Coast correspondent. Though today he's ensconced um, 
in what appears to be the witness protection program somewhere in the east, somewhere in the eastern United States. Um, and uh, the Wizard of the West Coast co-founder, the CPG guy, Shri. Shri, how are you doing today? I'm doing awesome, Brian. And you know the reason why we're a week away from opening day, the 30th next week. And of course, Gary yes, Cole will yes. be on the mound. And I got a trivia to share with the audience. You all already know that this is a baseball podcast that does other things, so we might as well stick to the theme of baseball. But um, who has the record or history for maximum opening day career starts? Tom Seaver. Tom Seaver. Yes, I thought that was... 16 starts. I was going to get there, actually. Yeah. To, to start 16 seasons... As the in opening day, that's crazy. And then Randy Johnson is up there with 14, but that wasn't a surprise. I think the whole country knows him. I can't wait. Gary Cole on the mound. Now, the, the funny part is, of course, um, funny part is, of course, um, our third ho uh, host of the CPG guys who isn't here today, Peter Bond, is a Dodgers fan, diehard Dodgers fan. I'm going to opening day at Dodgers Stadium living in L.A. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's uh, that's good. The, the Red Sox will have Chris Sale unless he somehow spontaneously combusts between now and opening day, which is entirely possible. So, uh, so um, when, when I saw when I when I saw the Mets closer go out for the year after celebrating a victory in the World Baseball Classic, I, that felt like a very Red Soxian injury. So uh, I'm, I'm glad somebody else seems to have that luck. So, uh, so uh, anyway, back to the actual topic that the listeners have tuned into, though I'm sure they are eager for more random baseball powder. Um, uh, today we're going to, uh, of course, discuss one of our favorite topics, Shri, um, which is retail media, a topic we've talked about from time to time. Uh, but we're going to look at this through a really different lens than we, uh, than we typically do. And, uh, as today we're really looking at, um, what's in store. And uh, really, the way that retail media networks are increasingly going to be brought to life, not just in the digital world, uh, but in the physical world, the store-based ecosystem. And we're going to be joined on this journey today by our new friends from Stratacash, um, who are leaders in a wide range of solutions uh, to help bring the promise of in-store retail media to life. And um, look, we all know, and I think at this point, everybody's seen that chart that gets thrown up all the time when you start to talk about the promise of in-store retail media that shows the sheer audience size of the in-store media network, and particularly when you compare it to somebody like Walmart and their digital audience, right? Like most most primarily brick-and-mortar retailers have an audience that's at least 50% larger in their store-based ecosystem uh, than they do in their digital one. Um, the ability to turn that, um, you know, and really trying to figure out how to bring that audience to life um, through their digital assets, the ability to bring, to turn that, um, you know, that sort of in-store merchandising, which is historically been like really event-based spend that lacks precision and measurement and targeting and sort of turn that into media that's more sort of provably effective and personalized. It's a really powerful potential promise. We at the CPG guys are pleased to launch the first of what we uh, will be several different views of what we'll call what's in store, the future of in-store retail media. And that's the working title of our partnership with Stratacash, here to explore a wide range of topics associated with bringing the in-store retail media presence to life. So buckle up, this could be quite an episode. Uh, today we're joined by Chris Regal, the CEO, and Jonathan Rosen, the SVP of Content Strategy and Consumer Experience uh, at PRM, Division of Stratacash, focused on in-store shopper media and experience. 
Um, before we get to our guests, of course, I want to remind our audience to visit thecpgguys.com, uh, where you can find links to our podcast and, and uh, subscribe or follow on all of the major podcast platforms if you're not already doing so. Also, please follow us on LinkedIn, where you can join up to 20, over 20,000 of your closest friends, where we publish new content, not one, not two, not three, not four, not five or six, but literally seven days a week, Shree. And, um, and if there are eight days a week to publish content on, we do it in eight, right? So even on the weekends, we've got new content up there, um, variety of different podcasts and streams. Please check it out. Um, at CBG Guys, we're also proud to be sponsors of Next Up, formerly uh, the Network of Executive Women, whose mission is to advance all women in business and to promote gender equality in the workplace. Um, the digital liner notes of this episode contain hyperlinks to our site, our LinkedIn page, and our landing page on Next Up's site as well. So with all of that out of the way, Shri, what do you think? Should we get to the main event here? You know what, Brian? This is an exciting moment for me and for the CPG guys because this is the first time our favorite topic, retail media, we're going to touch the in-store space. And I'm personally looking forward to that, not just because it's the first time, because the timing of this episode couldn't be any better. Shop Talk is actually just a day away. Many of y'all will be going to Shop Talk. You know, when I say many from the audience... You'll probably want to get in touch with Stratacatch and find out what is going on from an in-store perspective and how they bring value. So let's get ready to rumble. Excellent. And uh, we'll, we'll be sending, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be spending Michael, whatever his name is, the licensing fee for that, of course, because uh, we are all about, we are all about uh, equitable sharing content. So uh, for my voice, so, well, you won't have to send any. Remember, I got a, I got a very good radio face, so no one cares. <laughs> Well, that's why we're an audio. That's why we're an audio first medium. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry, Chris and Jonathan. Welcome to the episode. Thanks. Happy to be here. Great to be here. Super. Um, and we're great to be here with you uh, virtually today. We're also setting a CPG guys record today for the most time zones covered in an episode. Um, so you guys are on the West Coast. We've got Tree Base in the East. And uh, I'm actually really coming to you fast forward from the future uh, as I'm talking to you from tomorrow in New Zealand. So, uh, so which is like Tomorrowland in so many ways. So we're going to include links to your LinkedIn profiles and the Stratocash sites in the uh, digital liner notes of the podcast episode. But um but why don't we, as we get started, um, you've both had quite a journey to get to the uh, this world of uh, in-store retail media. Um, Chris, why don't we start with you? Um, I want to talk a little bit about your history and the history of Stratacash, which, you know, knowing a bit of this history myself, I know that the evolution of your business is deeply intertwined with the evolution of retail media. So and tell us a little about you and, uh, and, the, and the background of the company. Yeah, absolutely. So I founded Stratacash in 1999. Uh, we've grown over the past 24 years to really be a leader in multiple types of digital experience in store, in retail media networks, in QSR, hospitality, gaming and CPG areas. And we've really evolved uh, as a company in helping our customers find new ways to monetize their customers. So with the retail media trend, uh, we've seen really over the last 15 years an explosion in retail media. It's just become super hot in the last two years, three years, as it were. But that ability to say, hey, my shopper's audience can now be monetized in-store, out-of-store, multiple different ways for those retailers to add new revenue streams. That's a super exciting point. Awesome. And um and then, um, and then, yeah, just to, and then just give people kind of, you guys do a lot, but if you, if there's any way to just give us an overview of some of the things that, um, that Stratacash is involved in, in the retail media space in terms of some of the, some of the specific things that you do. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we serve uh, hundreds of customers globally uh, when it's all said and done across all the categories, about 16,000 customers in 30 countries around the world. Typically, retail media networks, when you get to the in-store sector, which is our real sector, gravitate around those top 10, top 15 GDP countries. So there's a direct association in retail media with those countries that have the highest GDP towards advertising, brands that want to get in front of those customers. And there's no better place to do that than in-store, kind of right at that point of decision, as Coca-Cola calls it, the arm's length of desire, uh, right at that conversion point. So within that, uh, we run networks in very large retailers all around the world to help those retailers convert those customers, both on the sales side, so what we call hybrid merchant networks, as well as pure retail media networks. And those networks can be in-store, proximate to store, on-shelf, but any way that that retailer can find a way to monetize that customer experience. Excellent. And uh, it's funny that you use that decision phrase because Coca-Cola also will sometimes call that decision marketing. And they do that because they were told to do that by my old colleague, Kirsty Hawks at Kantar. Um, So, uh, so it's, it's, it's fun to be, it's fun to talk to people that have been around this space and the, what the artist formerly known as shopper marketing space for a very long time. And, um, of course, when, uh, you know, the PRN division, which goes way back to the original in-store media networks, which were the old TVs that used to be on in Walmarts in the late 1990s and stuff like that. This, this ecosystem's been around for a while. And I don't know that people are always as aware of like the real history of, people trying to figure out how to turn the store into a media platform. This isn't something that smart people that worked on the Amazon business discovered 18 months ago. So, uh, Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. And if you think about it, really, if you go back through some of the original retail media networks that were in 7-Eleven 30 years ago, broadcast satellites going to old 25-inch CRT TVs, the concept's been around forever. Now, the order of magnitude of the technologies has decreased in cost. And the retailers look at that as more of a audience play instead of just a straight ad play. And how am I able to drive those conversions? The metrics now and the data is so deep. You've gone to this environment where the amount of data that you can harvest in store relative to insights and analytics towards that customer is is almost unlimited. Some really cool stuff you can do. Awesome. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to dive into that as we get into the episode. So, uh, so Jonathan, you've been, uh, you've been quiet there. So we'll, uh, I, I do want to, uh, I do want to loop you in as well. And cause your journey's been really kind of a, a sort of an unusual one because your background's more in content than in retail. So, um, why don't you tell us about that? And I'd be curious to think about how you think your experience connects to the evolution of in-store media. And I guess the question would be, is this, you know, how do we start to weave in some of the great principles of great content into retail media rather than it just being really sort of a sort of a glorified shelf tag or something that's not as engaging or not as uh, sort of compelling? Yeah, that's absolutely right. And you had me biting my tongue. I, I was very quiet. Now I get to talk. And one of my favorite things to do <laughs> is to talk and to talk Fantastic. about this. Uh, you're right. My background actually is is a creative background. I went to grad school at the American Film Institute for directing. And then I spent many years making TV shows for like Discovery and National Geographic and channels like that. And in TV, you know, you have to deliver a show that serves multiple stakeholders. So it has to work for the network. It has to work for the advertisers. It has to work for uh, the viewer, of course. And, and in-store retail media is similar in that you're serving multiple stakeholders. But at the end of the day, you know, for both channels, if you don't connect with the consumer and create an emotional response, changing behavior, there's really no point 
Now, that analogy can only go so far, right? Because in-store media isn't TV. Shoppers don't go to stores to consume media. They go mission-based, right? They're going for a reason. And and fundamentally, they they need to be served uh, media that works for that reason. Uh, and the thing that has served me with that content ba- and storytelling background is that you know, it's it's less of a price and promotion play to think about how you program an in-store network and much more about content and stories. Because, you know, in TV, for example, a, ro- a robust content strategy is based on the idea of formats or franchises, the content hooks, kind of the building blocks of the kinds of stories that you're going to tell day in and day out. And sometimes price and promotion are, are the central hooks. But oftentimes the hooks are in totally different areas. You know, what's new, what's innovative, what's coming soon, what's trending right now, what's relevant for the weather conditions right now, and and how does this product serve my family, or or how is it committed to the beliefs and values that matter to me? And a lot of those hooks, again, are are the things that in store can make a difference uh, that go a little bit beyond price and and promotion. Uh, which is a subset of what's required. I mean, fundamentally, though, it's short, short form media. It's single purpose, single minded. And really, if I had to put one word at it, that's a little different than what content is on TV or any other medium. It just needs to be hyper useful. I love that as a uh, as 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 a way to look at that. And I think that um, there's so many there's so much conversation in the digital retail media world about this notion of full funnel and all that. And it's like, you've already got a platform, the store, which has historically carried a lot of different parts of the funnel, but sometimes just without the right content to be able to bring different parts of the funnel to life the right way. So I love this idea of, of really being able to utilize what the store is good at and enhance that with the right sort of emotive content or informational content that allow the store to expand its reach in the traditional funnel in some pretty cool ways. So, um, yeah, that's really this concept of triggers, you know, the, the idea of what what is the emotional trigger tied to the product and that moment, that place in the store and the mindset and that day and all the data that we have coming in. And how do you reflect that in the most elegant uh, sort of way that's going to move uh, and change behavior? I'm already loving this episode because I've waited three years on the CPG guys to have a conversation in store. And here we here we are. We've got a first We've said the word in store because I'm counting. That's why I have a pen in my hand seven times. So I'm already loving this. Um, <laughs> but I love the way you framed it, Jonathan, where you talked about what advertising really does, right? Invoking an emotional response from the consumer. And it's much harder to do in store because you don't have the latitude in store to do it. Because why don't you have the latitude? Because they're on a mission. It's very purposeful why they come in store. And uh, hence, you use the keyword over there, the focus of the... Um, the in-store retail media network really needs to be content and stories that can indeed invoke some kind of a, a emotional response that causes curiosity to want to learn about a brand that's on the content and story versus an ad typically would be a price and promo. So that's a great segue, Chris, to you into what's obvious at this stage that there's a ton of excitement about retail media in the industry. In fact, the anchor team, when uh, most of us will be at Shop Talk tomorrow and for the next four days, will be retail media. And of course, it's one of the uh, niche focuses of this podcast. 
it's often said that here in the United States, the retail media is in the $60 billion space already. And then Amazon is about 60% or $38 billion of that. Uh, so what excites you now about the in-store piece of the retail media ecosystem, given how big and rapidly growing the piece is? Yeah, I would say really three things. Uh, you get to, at first, the base technology, where as the technology continues to commoditize, the cost to deliver retail media in-store is dec decreasing. The second is the data. Uh, and when I say the data, as you have more customers that may opt in via loyalty that may opt in via mobile app on their phone, the ability to personalize experiences. To Jonathan's point on storytelling and curated experiences as it can come through, more and more shoppers are engaging the brand in that omnichannel way of I may have that mobile app, I may have my shopper loyalty, I may be able to associate that with their journey throughout the store. And then that leads perfectly into the third point, which is sensors. Thinking of retail media networks as a display point, it's not really an endpoint, it's a waypoint within. Because that ability to understand where the customer is going, how to message to them more effectively when they're on that journey, but then also know the path, know where they spent time, know what it interested them, know what converted, what didn't convert. Retailers have great first-party knowledge from transactions, but Jonathan may be going through that Whole Foods and dwell in an area but not buy in it. Maybe going through that Kroger and going into a department that he shopped but didn't convert. Taking that data in and then being able to re-leverage that in-store data. Amazon knows everything about you when you're searching on their site, but does Kroger know where you went in the store but didn't convert? That That's an, a huge opportunity to use that retail media network as a data acquisition and insights platform on the shopper, and then another way for retailers to monetize that. So Chris, yeah, just to follow ahead, up to that, Brian, um, on the sensors piece, right, which is a key piece of being able to generate some of the data, especially the hover time and the path to purchase within a store, um, how does that actually, from a tech standpoint work with the retailer is it the app where a shopper consumer does an opt-in and uh, are they do, are, once they've opted in once is it automatic every single time like just give us the highlights here yeah it's, it's a great point um there's a couple different ways to skin the cat uh so i i kind of open it to say there are technology platforms that can do that with computer vision analytics. So using the surveillance systems in store to track a consumer through that area. And then when they check out, associate a payment or a loyalty point with their journey and harvest data that way. It could be the app on their phone if they've opted in and they're affirmatively opting into that. But the, the camera piece of it is becoming a little bit trickier because you have New York, California, Illinois, most of Canada now, and a good chunk of the EU that's a biometric identification is no longer legal or it's in a very gray area. Uh, the, the, the third and most prevalent way, the way that we do it, is inexpensive sensors on carts and using radio signals. So those radio signals to be able to track through a store can be hyper precise. And because the retailer owns that cart or that basket, you have full privacy wrapper around it and no questions relative to security. Well, and that's the thing with like the Instacart carrot carts and things like that. And the, the, like the ability to, the ability to fully enable the cart as part of the technology solution for the journey so that the shoppers logged in with their loyalty card to whatever media is getting served them through the cart. They're using the cart as a checkout process. The ability to see all this stuff is going to go go through the roof as these technology solutions continue to to innovate and the ability to the the interesting 
thing here is that sometime in the next few years, you're going to get close to, not at, but close to the same sort of clickstream analysis, if you will, of a shopper going through a store that historically has been the purview of the digital marketing world. Like, you know, watching somebody walk and turn down aisles, those are basically clicks on a web page, right? And you can kind of think about that in a pretty cool way. So, um, so this all sounds awesome, but, uh, one imagines there are some barriers to this beyond, beyond one of the ones you hit already. Brian, one of the things that I, privacy. Brian, before we get into the next question, though, I thought, Chris, we, everything you said, I think, is contextual to the United States. Anything internationally for you to share here from the business? You know, you refer to a fairly large network oh, yeah, here. Good, and you refer to point. being in the countries of the top 10 GDPs. So U.S. size, 60 billion, retail media, like what's going on internationally? It's really interesting to see where in the U.S. Uh, and U.S. retailers perceive their size to be giants. And they certainly are relative to the European, many of the European retailers. Uh, you could take a Carrefour who might have the same number of stores as Walmart, but Carrefour is in multiple countries, multiple decisioning paths. So the big giants in the U.S. are big right up until the point that you work with Reliance in India or you work with some of the very large Chinese retailers where you're not into thousands of stores, but tens of thousands. In that, uh, mo what I call the modernization of retail that's happening throughout Southeast Asia and India, there's just some really, really cool things that are happening relative to take a reliance who's both in the telecommunications industry as well as the retail industry. The tying of the mobile device and shopper identification to micro-targeting in those environments is amazingly cool, but it's also a different scale. You don't have the same spend even though the on on advertising, even though the population is huge. So different trends, different approaches. I think in, in all the different regions, the retailers are chasing that same opportunity for incremental new dollars, not just moving shopper marketing dollars from one pocket to the next pocket. And you're seeing in those kind of more media forward environments or, or countries, uh, advertisers saying, hey, wait a minute, this is a, a new unique channel that's different than just my traditional trade dollars or shopper marketing dollars. Oh, that's 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 excellent. I I look forward to the future episode. That's all about the evolution of modern retail in India, which is one of the most fascinating things. So Shri and I are back for that one. So um so uh, as uh, I was I was I was on the ground with Walmart when they launched there um, as part of the WPP team that was helping them twenty years ago, whatever it was. So uh, Brian, so that strangely, was a, it may I may know a thing or two about India. I wonder why. It's it's hard to tell, um, Shri, where, where that where that perspective comes from. So, uh, so uh, well, I'm going to stop culturally appropriating Shri for a minute and uh, ask a follow up question. Now we've uh, we've talked about the um, some of the opportunities, but uh, what are some of the barriers involved in bringing apart from privacy that we were chatting about before? What are some of the barriers that are to bringing this to life that you see? Yeah, I think the biggest barrier that we see pretty consistently is infrastructure in store. When you're doing the, if you say that uh, there's three parts to retail media. Uh, the web, the mobile, and then the in-store. And web and mobile, those are relatively, and people laugh when I say this, easy to implement because you're doing that from a cloud, you're doing that from a, from servers that can be proximate to the internet and it's easy. When you get in-store, you have all the operational challenges of being in an in-store environment and something as simple as, hey, you have thousands of points that you can light up in a store, except there's no power, there's no network within that environment. So infrastructure is a huge problem, number one. Number two, within that retail environment, retailers are very smart about having 
all parts of that infrastructure paid for by the brands that are selling there. So if I'm in a freezer environment, guess who's paying for those freezers? If I'm selling soda, guess who's paying for those soda shelves? When you get into technology in the environment, the, the real struggle of how do you capitalize these networks? The financing models that we work with, the financial models that we work with, to be able to say no retailer works under an environment of, hey, let me go spend 100, 200, 300 million dollars in CapEx to build out screens in my stores, and I'm going to recapture that over three or four years. There has to be a way for them to finance that in so it's cash flow positive day one. Otherwise, the adult supervision being the CFO within that retailer is going to say, if I take my couple hundred million dollars to deploy a retail media network versus building new stores, they're always going to default to that build new stores. So it's coming up with the right financing and capital models to make that successful. So it's accretive to the bottom line. Well said, indeed. I mean, capital is one of the significant considerations here to be successful from a retail perspective with retail media in store. And by the way, I want to say again, this is overdue on the CPG guys. This is overdue at retail. We do need to bring together the online element of retail media, the in-store media. So timing can't get any better. So Jonathan, next one's for you. What are some of the ways brands? Well, actually, well, treat, treat. I'm going to break format. No, I just wanted to add one thing to what Chris said, which was just really interesting to me about capital. And and in a way too, it's 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 not only the capital and the infrastructure, but it's the fundamental strategy of why a network would go in store, uh, what's going to go on the screens, and why, and how you tell that story to all the stakeholders who are involved at a retailer. Because uh, so it's really critical that that fundamentally it's it's making marketing uh, tell the stories that they want to tell, but it's also selling product, and then the brands want to participate. And to Chris's point, it it can't be uh, cannibalizing uh, trade dollars; it's got to be coming from other sources. And then selling it in store is kind of a a different proposition than than selling online. So it's got a lot of interesting challenges that that you know over years you can you can kind of start to break them down and figure out well if you have a vision that kind of addresses all of those you, you can really get over some of those challenges and then it does to Chris's point often become a capital discussion and and then it you know you need to really be able to justify why you're spending what you're spending and 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 present it in a way that that's palatable and reasonable for a retailer to to think about a long-term relationship and Jonathan, that actually results in my next question, which is, what are some of the ways that the brands and retailers you refer to can get started with you guys over here? And then what are some attributes perhaps for retailers to build early successes, proofs of concepts, et cetera? Yeah, that's a really great question in that uh, it's really, you know, it, it you don't want to boil the ocean and it's really hard to know with something as complex as this uh, involving so many different potential people at the retail level, marketing, IT, and 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 uh, CFOs, that you know, how do you start? Well, you know, we find that the best way to do it is is a proof of concept. With not surprising, but the way we think of proof of concepts is is very different uh, in in a lot of ways. For one thing, you need to build out the scaled model of what it's going to look like when you deploy. So if you don't start with that sort of what would the end game be? I, you know, a friend once said, you know, you write the press release essentially of what success looks like at scale, 
And, and that makes sense to me. You have to start with that vision of what it will look like at scale, and it has to pencil in. I mean, it has to make sense. The numbers have to make sense. Once you do that, and, and there's a lot of different ways to build those models, and that's something that, that we've spent a lot of time working on and refining. We have people de dedicated just to that. Uh, you know, then it's about this learning agenda for a POC, you know, because it is a it is a something that you're testing. So you do want to have the flexibility of putting something out there that's kind of a lean version of the product. But at the same time, it, it better be fundamentally what the product is meant to do, namely the right screen or the right display. It should be in the right store. It should have a content strategy that's robust, even though it's a test, because that is part of what you're testing. And, and it needs to work for, for all the stakeholders. Uh, again, so that's like a Bible of what it is that we're doing here uh, that's, that rolls up to a bigger vision of what it is that this network is and how it relates to the retail media network and what's going on online and assets traveling through the ecosystem and just the larger vision of what a, a retail brand wants to be. Uh, and then the other thing that we've noticed to, to make these POCs successful is to get the brands involved right off the bat. I mean, if you're testing a monetization concept, uh, you know, you're testing a network that you think brands want to come to the table to because you've got some really interesting experiences that make a difference and will sell more product and create a better shopper experience and 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 so on. You need to bring the brands in right off the bat and, and have them com commit to uh, playing in the sandbox with you you know, and learning together. We share the data that, of what we learn and we refine together because they really need to be partners in this process. And we find that retailers want to bring uh, key brands to the table for these proofs of concept because it, it just really helps everyone get aligned on what we're all trying to do together. It, one thing, if I can add to that, because I think Jonathan, you made a great point. Within you know, in the last 20 years, we've delivered north of five billion in revenue in our customer networks in retail media networks. The biggest thing from a brand perspective is if I'm a large grocer, large uh, retailer, I have those relationships to for shelf placement, for trade dollars, for all that today. But you have to think of who that competition is. You're competing for media dollars against TikTok, against Meta, against Google, and other forms. So retailers come in occasionally with that approach to say, hey, I'm X percentage of your US sales. I want X percentage of your ad dollars. No, 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 no. You've got to be able to compete on the media level. And in competing in that media level to say, hey, yes, I'm not TikTok. I get that. But I'm going to give you hyper-targeting of your desired consumer where they can convert on it. And you can't do that on TikTok the same way. So it, it's making a compelling media argument, but having that scale to be able to do it. We always use the rule to say, if it's not a thousand stores, the brands aren't going to have time. They'll give you money for that test or for that trial to be polite, but to get into the real dollars, the real critical mass, you've got to have a thousand stores and be able to hit those major media markets the same way any other media company or platform would promote themselves. Yeah, and I, and I think this is an underrated part of what the Kroger Albertsons integration is, should it, should the FTC approve it. That's a major part of the strategy. This isn't just about being able to buy. This isn't just about being able to buy milk cheaper because I'm bigger. It's about presenting advertisers for the first time with a legitimate national retail media network that reaches most of the major metro markets in the country in a really compelling way. So I think that over time you're going to see more of that evolve. And I think this is one of the big differences. You know, Chris, we were talking about the global market before because 
one of the biggest differences between the U.S. and other countries. Yeah, the U.S. is bigger, but the retail market's way more fragmented here. So, so you know, if you're you know better than I do, but if you're if you're in Australia, you there's no better way to reach Australian consumers than through the two retailers they buy grocery and groceries and who dominate eighty five to ninety percent of the market. So, so uh, completely. It, it- and think of that audience, so that, that consumer in store is an audience. Think of the stratification that happens. A TikTok can reach what percentage of the 19 to 23 year olds immediately. But if you're over 50, do you care? Like how much time are you spending on that platform? So retail media is really, really interesting demographically in, in that the ability to hit different segments of the market that may be less media savvy than younger generations, number one. But then you'll just also look at the economic distributions. Is the same customer that goes into a Walmart or a Kroger or a Whole Foods the same customer that goes into a Dollar General, Dollar Tree? The different stratification of those target markets, different products, different messaging, different opportunities within. And that's where retail media networking can be really fascinating. I was just going to say from a content perspective, what's cool about what Chris is saying is that you have all these data points on those consumers and you can end up tuning the store uh, essentially for, you know, all of those data points that you're gathering, who who tends to be there when, uh, how are, what are the shopping patterns of that particular localized store? So, so really what happens is the media that flows into an in-store retail media network is so dynamic and so tuned to the environment that it, you know you're you're it's hyper targeted but it's also mass yeah that's the that's the cool that that's the cool part it combines some of the targeting capabilities of digital media with sort of the what are the sort of the broad based reach of old scale old school linear television so it's a interesting way to look at it just a quick reminder to the audience we're listening to uh, Chris Regal and uh, Jonathan Rosen from Stratacash and PRN here so um, so Jonathan let's build on that last point again here for a second and um and um, go back to best practices again. But now, given that we've described this medium as an interesting mix of hyper-useful, hyper-targetable, but also with mass reach, um, what are some of the... Um, yeah, what are some of the ways to think about the creative that should go into this sort of uh, in-store retail media execution? Well, there's a couple of things that we've learned. Uh, one is that, that uh, while video is really useful and, and actually going to be a necessary component to some elements that live in the store, uh, and and you know retailer programming is is the bucket of content that we call that speaks to what the re- the retailer is doing uh, initiatives you know things like uh, wellness and and loyalty and and delivery all the services that retailers and that, that has a that has a place uh, in the store when it's relevant of course uh, but but really fundamentally thinking about it as a little bit closer to what we've learned from the QSR practice that Stratacash has, which is namely the idea that you know menu boards need to change dynamically based on POS information, based on inventory data that's coming in, based on all sorts of other things that we know that will optimize the sale. Well, fundamentally, you know, obviously a, a large retailer has many more products than a QSR, and there are a lot more data points to be playing with. But you know, you, you you think about how to to take all that data in and then reflect it in a in a in a pattern of content that makes sense that has these triggers. So uh, it's about uh, you know price driven content at a certain time when we know certain people will be there, but it's about uh, you know aspirational content at another time based on the demographics of and, and the walk by information that we have, and then and then really to Chris's point, it, it's a 
what really informs this is that loop, that virtual circle of analytics that we're getting from our sensors, which allows us to really think about how to uh, how to take that media and 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 how to help the retailer retarget, maybe 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 you know drive them to the pet food aisle next time because we know they stopped at the pet food aisle this time. I don't know that I answered your question, by the way. <laughs> You did, yeah. No, no that's the, yeah. no. The, that was exactly right. Just trying to figure out what the because I like the mix of the creative, the mission base, and the and and using the measurement to fuel what the creative should look like. I do think that this is going to be one of those iterative looping processes where brands need to learn how to use this type of data and stimulus and input to build and refine creative and strategic objectives as they do this. I, right now, there's especially in the digital media world. I don't know that this is much clearer thinking about how to do that necessarily. Ironically, I think the commercial teams that have been doing merchandising for years probably understand some of these problems better than the digital media teams do, but they just don't, they don't speak the language of digital media well enough to sort of have that conversation yet. So I think there's a lot of integration that doing this in store in a way that makes sense to people that merchandise for a living, but also increasingly makes sense to media teams. That's some real, there's real power there. So. Yeah. Brian, you hit the nail on the head there, which is, you know, retailers have immense tribal knowledge relative to how to merchandise. And when you're thinking about that tribal knowledge, converting that to digital, digital gives you that palette to be able to do it. So, Hey, it's sunny versus cloudy. How does that product vary? It's Friday when people get paid versus Wednesday when they're running lean financially. So the ability to take, because the retailers have great first party data, AI layers that are done at the retail side or at the media side to be able to extract those learnings and understand whether temperature, day of week, holiday, traffic patterns proximate to the store. There's a whole wealth of data that you can use then to micro target. And humans, from a visual perspective, are immensely subject to suggestion. And especially in that mission where you're saying, hey, I'm there to accomplish something. So it, I, I hearken back and it's always a trope across industry, but the minority report kind of environment of smart targeting and messaging, you've done that on mobile for years. Amazon can look at that and say, relative to that shopping experience, take that same kind of logic and then bring that in the four walls of the store. That gives you as a retailer strategic advantage and that media network is truly a media network to be able to sell ads, but also to help them convert. I love the very specific example you just gave, Chris, of, hey, Wednesdays they could be, that could be payday, and you want to target and contextualize the shopper differently than a Friday when they may be running lean on their budget. But I'm going to come back to the elephant in the room question, which I love to ask always, which is all about measurement. Retail media was hard enough to measure. Of course, it's getting cleaner and easier by the day. We've used words like ROAS, IROAS, all kinds of new metrics. Brand objective seems to be the metrics of the day, but I want to jump to, I got to imagine measuring in-store media networks, outcomes and metrics are a little easier than the digital piece of this. So I'd love to learn from y'all, what should be the right metrics to measure in-store media effectiveness? And if you're a CFO, why do you care so much about this? I think it's a great question. I think the direct measurement is straight conversion. So whether I'm a brand in that retailer or whether I'm a retailer that's leveraging that media network for my private brands, you have a direct and immediate conversion metric. So to think of that as an in-store, you'll hear a lot about 
Obviously, programmatic, you'll hear a lot about non-endemic advertising, but our belief is always that the endemic, as it goes within the products on the shelves in those four walls, is the best and highest use, because at the end of the day, that retailer, while media is a part of the platform, is still in the business of selling product. So I think direct conversion is number one, but number two, as you're leveraging that media network, the ability to say... Uh, demographic, whether it be audience information or shopper information, the ability to show success back to the brand of, hey, I can give you brand insights on the shopper traffic volumes, types of shopper conversion metrics around them. If you think of that store as an audience capture opportunity to give insights back to brand to help that brand better serve that customer and understand where people are accepting or rejecting messaging, type, styles, pricing, et cetera, that data measurement and metric is also something I think is hugely beneficial. Jonathan, I'd pass to you as well. Yeah, I think, you know, what I was thinking about uh, was was just this concept of also how interactive works in store, particularly, you know, curated endless aisle, simple, simple, simple experiences that really allow a consumer to, to get to the product they want uh, immediately. Uh, and it's not just dropping the web into the store, obviously, or, or thinking that they're going to pick up their phone and do it. You, there are so many ways now that to, to sort of curate that process, simplify it, and, and even down to, you know, supporting the staffing issues that stores have. So, I mean, I'm thinking about, for example, assisted selling where, uh, somebody can can you know touch a screen and and learn more about a particular high end high margin bottle of wine and by talking to an expert uh and that expert's located somewhere else and is probably supporting 50 stores or 100 stores and so i think that those kinds of technologies which are uh in some ways really measurable right because they're 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 digitally based that adds another layer of information as well. I mean, it's not to say that that passive screens uh, uh, are less useful, but passive and interactive together, you know, and when you're digitizing the store, really does deliver a level of of data and information and personalization that you can, you know, that 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 that's kind of uh, substantial. And um, yeah, let's let's build on that just one tiny bit in terms of personalization. And um, how should we be thinking about the the future personalization in store? Like, is it that you know, is it the ability to you know, is it the Minority Report vision of you know, hi hi you know, hi, insert your name here is your offer, or is it more about Jonathan what you were talking about, which is not necessarily understanding what that person's name is, but really understanding with some rich nuance what it is they're trying to accomplish in that moment. Like, do you personalize the mission rather than the individual? Do you do both? How do you, how do you think about that? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I definitely, the minority report concept, which is something that that we talk about a lot and we debate a lot internally, you know, I, I think I personally think, you know, you're never, a one to many screen isn't the place necessarily to do that kind of one to one targeting. It would be creepy. Uh, but, you know, obviously leveraging these technologies and, and allowing a customer to on ramp to mobile and get that level of personalization rapidly. Uh, you know, QR codes are obviously a really great way to do that now. And, and digital is a great way to present QR codes because you can you can go a lot of different directions. You can change it up on a dime. But uh, I, I think, you know, it's not going to be a matter of, of one to one uh, mass screen, large screens communicating to people. 
but it is that tuning that we're talking about. It's the fundamental uh, example that Chris gave of, of, you know, it being a day of week that we know people are lean on, on cash. So we really should tune the content in a very different way. It's taking all of that data that we're learning about who tends to go through the store, what their paths are, how that varies week to week, store to store, location to location, and using that to set the rules and automate the rules and then adding in a layer of AI, essentially to tune what's going on in that store to manage it at scale. So I think I think that's what I think of as personalization. It's it's getting as close as possible to what the store ought to be talking about uh, and, and breathing to a customer. And I might add on to that in some of the retail media networks you see in Asia Pacific specifically, uh, that acknowledgement of the customer is seen as a sign of respect. So Jonathan walks into the store, they celebrate Jonathan, thank you for coming in, Mr. Rosen, we're happy to have you here. So it's it's a sign of respect that celebrates the consumer. And I think with younger consumers, that sticks as well. Celebrate you for just walking into my store, number one. Number two, in that... Everybody gets a trophy, yes, it's perfect. <laughs> Everybody gets a trophy, yes. Um, I'm not saying snowflake, but it is inferred. Uh, secondarily, it, relative to the, the concept of concierge service, at every point, from the retail experience perspective, you want that customer to feel that they're the only customer in your store. All of your focus is towards them. All of your intent is to try to help them through that journey better, faster, more efficiently. So that idea of the concierge in every point where every retailer that we know is struggling with labor costs and labor availability, how can I use that digital platform for digital first kind of engagements to give that customer that sense of, hey, I'm here to help you even if I don't have enough staff or they don't have the knowledge or the proper training to be able to do what they need to do, but hey, I have this digital experience that can help guide you through. The consumers are increasingly uh, open to interacting with those points. And if you see how in other industries, whether that be digital banking, whether that be QSRs with kiosks, the consumers are being trained in mass across multiple industries to be digital first. How does that then impact in the store environment where that store is becoming more and more of a fulfillment point for that customer, but it's increasingly self-service, everything from product finding to subject matter expertise to checkout. And now we go to the section of this podcast where we're going to live into Brian's new podcast, Fast Forward. And that is, Chris, let's do a fast forward look. How do you actually envision this evolution of the in-store media network to continue over the next, let's say, three odd years? And then how will programmatic squarely fit in? Arguably, we've already discussed programmatic here. So two things. I think, one, you'll see the continued mass and rapid growth. Uh, there'll be stumbles within some of that retail media in-store execution, but as a whole, the retailers are starting to learn that while Amazon might have a dominant position in the customer online, and it'd be a very tough fight for many of those retailers, when it comes to physical store, hey, let's leverage those assets, and you physical retailer can really captivate and unlock a ton of revenue there. So that's number one. Number two, as it comes to programmatic, we see a shift, and this started really in Australia with a very large retailer there. We're seeing it now in Canada and the U.S., where programmatic in the idea of third parties 
selling advertising in those networks for percentages of revenue is starting to, to fall off because these things are really hitting critical mass. And retailers are smart enough to understand they're, they're never going to cut in or should never cut in a third party to a percentage of their revenue. That revenue is the retailer's revenue because it's the retailer's store, the retailer's customer. And increasingly, they're seeing retailers deploy platforms and develop platforms where they capture that entire upside. So I think you'll see a decline in programmatic, but still may be used when you have remnant inventory, but more and more of these, what we'd call captive merchant retail media networks, where the retailers are able to get all of the benefit from that at the top side. Yeah. And I think we're, we're going to do a whole separate podcast on that whole idea of where programmatic fits into this, because it just, you know, I'm not a media person by upbringing. I'm a commercial and a supplier retailer guy. The notion of trying to sell that stuff programmatically is interesting, but also at some basic level hurts my head because it just, it doesn't actually make any sense in terms of how business plans work. Like that's just not how a retailer allocates in-store merchandising opportunities at all. It's just completely, it's completely not how that business planning process works. I think there's something interesting to the idea of being able to buy, as you said, remnant inventory at an audience level across multiple retailers. But the bulk of that's going to go through the endemic brands that are doing major joint business plans that the closer you get to the store, the more the media plan has to reflect the business plan that the brands and the retailers have. And that just seems like an, that seems like an odd place for a programmatic reseller to hang out. <laughs> it's just a... You're exactly right. And for Remnant, it makes sense. But when you're a brand in that store, you have to, you know, the worst case scenario is, hey, you did a great campaign. You got a ton of knowledge and visibility of the consumer, but you don't have product on the shelf. So you're still dealing with those retail supply chains. You have to have that product as part of a merch campaign. But you're also seeing now retailers start to say, hey, maybe I have that digital billboard along the I-95 in the corner of my store parking lot. And that's the non-endemic platform. So other points of utilization of the of the network where, yeah, maybe it's not Merch and endemic driven. Uh, all right, we could talk about this stuff for days, and we will over the next over the next uh, over the next uh, weeks and months to come. Um, but probably a good time to uh, to cap this one. And I'm just going to remind our audience: look um, for all of our content. Please go to the CPGs uh, the CPGguys.com. Uh, you can find anything that we've done. And if you think that your company's got some thought leadership to contribute to this, particularly as we you know, start to make more of a foray into the in-store retail media world, or if you just think you've got anything to add to the conversation in general, drop us a line at uh, contact at cpgguys.com, and uh, maybe you can join us on the podcast someday and talk about baseball with Shri and I. Um, don't forget to drop us a rating uh, anywhere that you get podcasts, particularly if it's a good rating. Um, all kidding aside, the good ratings really do help people to discover the episode. So uh, please, uh, please jump on and support away. And uh, thank you as always to our more than 20,000 followers on LinkedIn that uh, make this whole podcast possible. So uh, look, Chris, Jonathan, I just want to thank, uh, thank you guys a ton for your time. And, uh, and just to promise that for all the conversations we started today, which were a number of them, uh, expect that we're going to dive into a number of these in more detail, uh, in the weeks and months to come and look forward to looking for, look forward to going on that journey with, uh, with the two of you and, uh, and with Stratacash as this unfolds. So thank you for, uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Shree, what do you think, man? That's, uh, we got here. After uh, after years of wandering in the digital wilderness, we've arrived back in the uh, the, the the comfortable four walls of the retail store where uh, where you and I grew up. So uh, so what do you, what do you think? What are some of your closing thoughts on the episode as we wrap it up? 
I'm going to start with Brian right up front when we said in store, I started getting excited because like you said, we waited three years for this moment and here we are. So right up front, I knew this episode is going to go in the right direction. And then uh, when I heard Chris say up front, Sarkash has been in business for 24 years since 1999. Uh, the focus has been in-store and now the last uh, few years, the in-store digital piece as well. 16,000 customers around the world, kind of reckon it back to operating in the top 10 GDP countries of the world, which why those? Because they have audience sizes. And then I think Jonathan, um, somewhere in there when we were discussing that, Jonathan, you jumped in with how you differentiate between audience and ads. And you can do that with Stratacash because of the data you can harness in a 360 loop coming back from a partnership with Stratacash. Then we jump to connecting with the consumer being an important part of this in-store retail media networks. You um, you can do that in a TV ad to invoke an emotional response. Media is obviously harder to do in-store and hence the content needs to be focused on the consumer mission. And the easy way to do that is stay away from price promo, but for not always in certain instances you would based on the trip mission, but focus on content, focus on stories. And you can do that by getting the data back after a campaign and feeding it right back in. Then we discuss a little bit about is this doable, feasible, is it scalable? And then I think Chris, you explained clearly the cost of capital for tech has gone down significantly. And then if you pile the advantage on top of that is the data creation that I've referred to a few times. All, and the fact that opting in for personalization is becoming more and more common. You gave the example of sensors being put on the retail cart, which means they own the data anyway. It's just reducing the barriers to be able to do this on a rapid and dynamic basis. And at the end of the day, what does all that do? It allows the understanding of the path to purchase of a consumer, which is a gold mine in store, which is a gold mine, if you ask me. Uh, now, some barriers will always exist, such as infrastructure, but uh, the, the big one that y'all referred to was capitalizing the networks and how best how best to do that. Um, how does one start working with you? Proof of concept. But I love that you said right up front, the proof of concept is by building a scaled model and you need to have a model. And how do you do that? A press release on what success might look like at scale is the best way you can start thinking about a scale model. And then Chris, good comment on thinking about as you as you think about doing this and scaling, stay focused on who you're competing with these days if you're a media network. You're actually competing with the TikToks, the Facebooks, things of that nature, not to lose context. And the one big advantage that retailers have by doing this versus all of those is the conversion piece. And therefore, Chris, you recommended a thousand stores is a good place to get anchored on to be able to get that level of data and to prove this out pretty well. Then we jump to best practices as we started closing out the episode. Jonathan, those came from you. Content based on shopper context. Use the 360 loop of data that I've referred to quite a few times. We even used examples such as, hey, um, by processing this data and taking advantage of it, you, the um, the brand is going to get to know, hey, payday is Wednesday. How do you focus on target and hyper-target and contextualize, personalize, etc.? And then when you calibrate it with other data sources like weather, temperature, proximity to the store, easy to be able to even start thinking about predicting when someone comes in and they've opted in, what you need to be able to show them. Then I asked you about metrics, nothing can be better than direct conversion and that's where we landed. Although the brand insights portion of this is equally valuable, I've already called it a gold mine once. Lastly, we closed out with the future of personalization, delivering digitally and a little 
one you kind of dropped in there was obviously leveraging the QR code at will, which I would love to see brands do go forward uh, when they when they put stuff in store. But of course, um, they would have to print it on a label, which changes how things are designed in a factory or a manufacturing process. So the easy way they can do it with you and you can dynamically change that QR code at will, I imagine. Lastly, I asked the question, what's fast forward and very clearly Chris, you predicted, which I couldn't agree more with you, that we're going to see more mass and rapid growth and adoption of the in-store networks. Brian, how did I do? Uh, that was outstanding, Shree. You did better than I would because I would just, I just would have repeated the whole episode back. So, uh, so, um, and uh, I would have said it backwards, and we would have discovered that Paul is dead. Um, so, uh, but we we didn't do that. But no, that was awesome. And uh, well, everybody, thank you for your time, and uh, hope uh, hope the the 20, our 20,000 followers have found this journey into the store to be uh, useful and illuminating. More to come. So uh, thanks, everybody. And uh, for those of you who are going to see a Chop Talk, we'll, uh, we'll see you soon. Take care. The content in this podcast episode is provided for general informational purposes only. By listening to our episode, you understand that no information contained in this episode should be construed as advice from CPG Guys LLC or the individual author, hosts, or guests, nor is it intended to be a substitute for research on any subject matter. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by CPG Guys LLC. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The views expressed by CPG Guys LLC do not represent the views of their employers or the entity they represent. CPG Guys LLC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, or inability to use this podcast or the information we present in this podcast.